Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Abby Martin. Welcome, everybody. This is Robbie Martin. Nice to be back. It's been a couple. Yeah, it's nice to be back. Happy 2019, everyone. You know, the holidays kind of caused us to be very busy, so we're back. um, And we have three episodes, um, at at least, uh, coming out at the end of uh, this month. So they're going to kind of come fast and furious um, mm-hmm. before the end of January. But um, yeah, we wanted to get them all out for you guys and just reassure you that we have not disappeared. Um, we didn't decide to do less episodes. We just kind of got sidetracked. And you've been working very hard on your new Empire Files series about Trump, which is excellent. And I recommend everybody listening to go check it out. And anyone else, especially anyone who still thinks Trump is an anti-interventionist, um, anti-neocon force in D.C. definitely needs to check it out because the facts um, and the evidence completely contradict that narrative. Right. So we have been working very, very hard. Robbie, you have too because you did the original score um, for the first two episodes, which is just brings it to a really a whole different level. Um, yeah, so the first two episodes we released, the first one was about how Trump is expanding the empire, kind of a broad overview of the series that we're coming out with. Kind of the same material that I went over in the last podcast, um, responding to that Afghanistan and Syria troop withdrawal that Trump announced right before Christmas. So we break it all down. We talk about the um, absurd increase in civilian casualties, uh, the exacerbation of drone strikes, um, just it goes on and on and on what Trump has really done on top of, of course, setting his sights on Latin America. Our second episode is about the Syria deception, so Trump's Syria deception really breaking through the rhetoric and actually explaining what's actually going on, because at the same time he announced the Syria withdrawal, he also announced the indefinite extension of the criminal occupation of Iraq, um, which he has no problem with, and which is really, you know, why are we just conditioned and accepting that that's okay to just go on indefinitely, similarly to Afghanistan. So, But Abby, um, he said the Iraq war was a big, fat mistake. (laughs) <laughs> we should have never gone into Iraq. That's not um, good I'm enough really, for you? To your point, Robbie, he did say a lot of crazy stuff during the debates. And I think that um, this series, we're really trying to bring out who Trump really is. Because, yeah, he, he spoke out of both sides of his mouth. He said a lot of things that he didn't carry through on in the debates. You know, he hinted to that anti-interventionism. What we outline in this docu-series is we compile these montages of how crazy what he says really is and what he's actually carried through on. So the rhetoric that he's said, the worst rhetoric that he's said, he's actually carried through on that rhetoric. So it's very scary when you see him um, basically encouraging beheading. He says we need to be like ISIS. He says he wants much worse than waterboarding. We need to bomb the shit out of them. And their families. So, yeah, it's pretty disturbing when you really look at this because we forgot. We forgot and we forget how crazy the shit that he really says and does is because, of course, there's this false paradigm being presented between the mainstream media, these neoliberals who are fighting Trump from the right, right, pushing the militarism from the right, stay in Syria, this is dangerous for national security, and then you have the the anti-interventionist fake narrative from the Trumpsters. Both are fake. And so what this series does is break through that paradigm and really just reveals the facts and the policies that have been enacted. Oliver Stone called it brilliant and strong. So if that's a good enough uh, recommendation, then please go watch it if you haven't already. Share it. 
Um, and it's just really exciting to get this feedback from people who are saying, wow, I, I can't believe, you know, as much as the media harps on Trump, how have we missed these facts? And that's exactly what we were going for. While everyone's hysterically focused on, on the superfluous like bullshit about Trump, we're trying to focus on you know, what's really important, especially when it comes to foreign policy and imperialism. Yeah, and we have, uh, for our next episode, we're going to have a little bit more of a discussion about this general concept and sort of what's the newest stuff that's been happening with you know, the supposed Trump wanting to end all the wars thing. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of leftists, actually, who are being, in my opinion, way too overly hopeful about Trump's empty rhetoric about ending the wars or pulling the troops out. Um, and it surprises me because, you know, a lot of leftist anti-imperialists were very staunchly um, against Obama for not fully withdrawing all the troops in Afghanistan or pulling out of Iraq like quicker than he had. So it's like they didn't give him an inch. We didn't give Obama an inch. So it's surprising to me to see people on the left who I have respect for having the the um, wool pulled over their eyes when it comes to Trump's rhetoric on pulling out of the wars. I mean, yeah, he said some anti-interventionist sounding things that sounded good during the campaign. But he also said things like he actually said pro-Iraq war things on the Howard Stern show and in other places before the Iraq war became unpopular. He was pro-bombing Libya before he was against it. So, you know, all these people out there who are cherry-picking just the things that he said that sound good to them, I think, are being very intellectually dishonest. And uh, your episode does a great job of just totally tearing that narrative apart. Yeah, and as we're going to talk about now, I mean, this uh, what's happening in Venezuela all these supposedly right anti-interventionists don't care about regime change in Venezuela. I mean, it says a lot. It's like, how could you be anti-interventionist and want to take out the uh, elected president of Venezuela? It just doesn't make sense. So oh, why, totally. do, you, why and, do you go into that? Well, to close out the thing about Trump expanding the empire, um, and to your point, Robbie, I was surprised to see Jeremy Scale jump on board with the rhetoric that Donald Trump is the best hope that we have since 9-11 to end some of these forever wars. I thought that because was very bizarre. Because just a month ago, yeah. it and is he, very bizarre, yeah. What was interesting, I don't know if you listened to his broadcast, I have a feeling he watched your episode before he did it because he cut in clips that were you used in your episode about bombing the shit out of people. Like He tried to show a counterpoint to that too, a little bit. If anything, I think you're, you know, even if you hadn't seen your episode, your episodes are having an influence and they're so real and to the point that you would have to be more, you'd have to be intellectually dishonest to like not acknowledge some of those things at that point. If you're having a discussion about this idea that Trump is an anti-interventionist. What's so cool about doing something like this and having a donor base to support this is because it kind of is counterintuitive to the nature of media consumption and production right now. Um, you know, you can talk about how grifters grift all day long, but it, it just really says something and it kind of is a stark contrast just in the production quality and the deep dive investigative quality of it. And I feel like too much coverage has been reacting to how the media reacts to Trump instead of actually focusing on, hey, what is Trump actually doing? So 
I was really happy to do that and we're just going to keep going. And anyone who's already a donor of Media Roots Radio, first and foremost, definitely um, give some love to Empire Files and Media Roots. And, you know, we work really hard on this, but we just try to put out really quality stuff. Um, and it's not about the hits. We don't even have ads on these videos. It's just really about the information and, and really getting high quality work out there. So. And it's also designed, I think you purposely wanted to challenge people right. because for some reason... We, you know, after the election, I, we still get comments all the time from people mad at us for not acknowledging that Trump wants to end all the wars or is anti-interventionist. It's like people are still holding on to this fantasy. And your episode just does a great job of just really challenging those people because, frankly, there's really nothing you could argue to say that anything in your episode is wrong. The only argument you can make would be like dishonest, like wiggle, wiggling out of the argument kind of things by saying, oh... He's being led by John Bolton. He doesn't want to do this. <laughs> or, or he has to do this because the D.C. establishment's putting so much pressure on him. Like people say that with like the Russia maneuvers that he's done against Russia, like funding Ukrainian weapons. Right, you know, right. People can't admit, no, he just actually really doesn't care. And, and he himself egoistically wants to seem tough on Russia. Like, so even if the D.C. establishment pushed him into that, it's all still him, dude. Like, he just wants oh to do it for God. his own ego. Like, it doesn't—none of these arguments hold water. I mean, your episode—that's why your episode's so important, because it just—it really does put the final kibosh on that fucking false premise. So Totally, and we're going to keep going, it. baby. We're going to keep going. We have the and, next one coming out of yeah. um, all of the war cabinet. Who are these people? Trump handpicked them all. The next episode of Media Roots, we're going to delve into some of that as well, and I mean, kind of as a companion piece to what you're— some of your future episodes are going to be. So we're going to continue on this subject uh, in different forms. You and Empire Files, us on Media Roots. Yeah. And when we go on other people's shows, we will bring it up because, you know, a lot of a lot of people still buy into this. Well, look deeper. You got to look deeper past these imperialist tricks and rhetoric. Like you said, we need yeah, to look at the actions, the not the rhetoric. And, yeah. and, and I'm sorry, but I don't buy the whole John Bolton is leading Trump by the nose. I mean... No. Give me a fucking break, dude. This guy was handpicked. I could have told you John Bolton was a genocidal maniac. Well, I could have told you not to pick him. I mean, what? It's so it's so weird. It's like, oh, poor Trump. This man is undermining his presidency. He picked literally one of the craziest <laughs> neocons imaginable. You know, Unreal. I mean, and I've seen people, you know, who are in the conspiracy movement who are like anti neocon try to create bizarre mental gymnastics arguments for why. And it just, it's just everybody will create an excuse. I mean, look at QAnon. It's all designed to make excuses for everything that Trump does that's stupid, including misspellings, their code. So it's just, you know, it'll never end. Hamburger meant Trump is arresting pedos. Did somebody actually say that? Yeah, of course. Holy fuck, dude. Of course, oh Robbie. my God. Speaking <laughs> of arresting pedos, I'm just going to throw this out there really quickly. Uh, people who were head over heels over True Detective and thought it was the best show ever, go back and watch it now post Pizzagate and you'll realize oh, that the fucking no. people who made True Detectives no. were just like super into elite pedo conspiracies in season no one. No way. Oh, it's 100%. That's all the show's about. It's, it's just like armchair the, philosophy, like three. teenage bullshit mixed with like yeah. elite pedo conspiracies mixed with like satanic panic. Good God. With amazing cinematography. I'll give it that. But it kind of is, it, it, the more time passes from True Detective Season 1, it's kind of like, ooh, 
pe- the creators were kind of pizza gators, but like proto pizza gate. It's kind of embarrassing to me to to think about how overinflated that show is. And now the new season is on, and it's again going back to the pedophile conspiracy stuff. What? What the fuck? That's yeah. so weird. Yeah, dude. Wow, I have to I have to catch up on that. And I'll, yeah, time I'll is a flat circle, time. bro. So here's what's going down, Robbie. Um, a coup is underway right now. We've been warning about this for years. Uh, people who've watched our Venezuela reporting, Mike's debunking of John Oliver already kind of know that pretty much anything that you see regarding Venezuela and the corporate media is very skewed and propagandistic and littered with falsehoods. Um, pretty much the only accurate sources that you're going to get on what's happening in Venezuela are Telesur and Venezuela Analysis. And I really want to give a shout out to Venezuela Analysis because they are very important to support they are a grassroots independent source um, on the ground, really cutting through this narrative, and you really are not seeing that elsewhere. And this is 24-7 pro-coup propaganda happening across the mainstream media. From all sides. Both parties, all sides, Democratic Party, Republican Party, everyone. The only people, so, just really yeah. quickly, the only people who are really holding, locking this down and opposing it are like social like openly socialist yeah or marxist people like even I, I see just a lot of silence just on the general left about this right now well it's confusing yeah it's very confusing i was confused before i went there it's a lot to take in it's a lot to investigate and to really understand the situation it's complicated as hell and especially when you're talking about economics um and sanctions and how like inflation works it's very confusing so i get like the kind of the absence of people weighing in, but at the same time, we should be absolutely unified in our opposition for U.S. regime change anywhere on the planet, if you call yourself remotely progressive. So the fact that there is such radio silence from so many people, I don't give a shit if you don't understand um, the economic complexities of Venezuela. Now we need to stand in unified fashion against what is going on. There was already whisperings of this going on because of Mike Pence um, tweeting. Yep. He tweeted, he said, it's time for a transition. Libertad. Um, Rubio, Trump followed suit, um, as well as the Democratic Party, saying they are not recognizing Maduro as a legitimate president of Venezuela. So just for some context, Maduro was reelected democratically. This has been proven time and again. They have very fair and free democratic elections. Um, every vote can be proven. The problem is the opposition that has been vying for power since the uh, election of Hugo Chavez has been trying to seize power by undemocratic means. They cannot win elections. So they try to foment violent, fascistic street battles. They try to seize power by undemocratic means. And they try to constantly call international bodies allied with the U.S. empire to overthrow its democratically elected leadership. Because why? Because the oligarchy is still alive and well in Venezuela. It still is very, very powerful. It's not a socialist country. It's a mixed economy. The corporations there still have inordinate control. They never lost uh, the power that they have in that small sector. And so they've been sabotaging the economy um, in every single way that they can. In 2016, when the opposition won finally the first election since Hugo Chavez, um, they won power in the National Assembly. Since then, they've shut down any sort of ability for the National Assembly to pass bills, to pass laws, because their whole purpose is to sabotage the government. 
So they have perpetuated like the complete sabotage and tanking of the economy. And then they use the inaction um, and the, you know, the lack of coordination between bodies to say, look, we're, we're, uh, we can't work with these people. Maduro is illegitimate. And so what happened was this new guy who's the head of the National Assembly. His name is Juan Guaido. He's the head of the National Assembly. So what happened is he just declared himself president of Venezuela. And this is a couple of weeks after Maduro was just sworn in to his second presidential term after winning a democratic election. See, the U.S. government and the opposition tried to boycott the election last time. Um, they refused to participate. And an opposition person actually ended up running against Maduro and got fucking trounced. And so Maduro won again. And so what's the next step after they lose the elections? They have to foment regime change. They have to try to instigate a coup. So they know that these street battles and violent insurrections don't work. Um, they've tried that time and again. We were in the middle of one ourselves. The opposition protesters um, threatened to lynch and murder us. We had to flee from the country. They followed and stalked us here. Hundreds of death threats, lynch threats. They lynched black people alive, burned them alive in the streets. So because that didn't work, this is an unprecedented thing, Robbie, for just a random dude to just declare himself, I'm the fucking president. I am president of Venezuela today. And he would never have done this without a green light in advance, well in advance from the U.S. and all of its proxy regime change fronts, the Organization of American States and all the rest, the, the Lima operation. group, whose essentially p purpose is, his main purpose is to overthrow Venezuela. So you see this. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah so now you see that the, it's all, it's all going into place. So once they declared this guy as the legitimate president, you have Donald Trump immediately acknowledging his legitimacy as president and I mean, all of these other organizations followed suit before, you know, we've seen other people in his administration saying more neoconservative sounding things compared to what he says, like Nikki Haley, like Pompeo, mm -hmm. like Bolton, especially like on social media. Uh, and then a lot of the times he doesn't follow. Th he'll just like not say something about it. Yeah. He says some things about Iran sometimes, but compared to what like Nikki Haley and Pompeo and stuff has said, it's, he's not said things nearly as harsh or militaristic as they have. But this is different where it was like almost like clockwork. The same thing started before Bolton, Pompeo, Pence were all saying things about this guy and officially recognizing him as president. And then Trump says it like at the end, he closes the circle. So this is a really serious serious real thing and it is clearly a regime change operation taking place right before our very eyes and it also needs to be acknowledged that trump has long talked about how he would have been for the iraq war if we could just steal their oil well guess what venezuela has one of the world's largest oil supplies so the it kind of largest. matches up perfectly with trump not bolton not the neocons, but Trump specifically. Trump is a unique form of mixture between neocon outlier, you know, right populism, whatever you want to call it. This is something that fits perfectly within what something that he would want to do. And also, it fits perfectly within the sort of the blind spots. You call them blind spots. You could just call it like they don't give a shit spots that the supposed right anti-interventionists have when it comes to Venezuela. Tucker Carlson 
has advocated for regime change in Venezuela as a counterpoint to not doing regime change in Syria. To this day, he'll still say, why aren't we getting rid of Maduro? His people are suffering. We don't, we need to, like, we don't need to get rid of Assad. We need to get rid of someone like Maduro. Like, I mean, he said right. things like that on his show. Right, right. Is that just him running his mouth? Or is it something actually deeper and more of a long-term plan where maybe Tucker Carlson is actually running interference for sort of an alternate track, quasi-neoconservative foreign policy platform, trying to kind of slyly advocate for regime change in Venezuela. You know, it's very, very toxic that an anti-quote-unquote anti-war guy is pushing regime change in Venezuela. And look very closely right now at what other people who are supposedly anti-intervention and right. see if they're talking about Venezuela and how we need to not overthrow the government there. And I think that's the litmus test right now for who is truly anti-interventionist. Well, because yeah, there's nothing if, to gain. It's only You can only have things to lose by standing up for Venezuela. Pompeo said right before this happened, too, he said the time is now for a return to democracy in Venezuela. And then the day after he tweeted that, um, Pompeo's department said, quote, it's time to begin the orderly transition to a new government. And at the same time that this is happening, the opposition-controlled National Assembly was changing. They were trying to invoke this, like, article of the Constitution that just characterized Maduro as illegitimate and just said, okay, now the presidency is vacant. Okay, great. So you invoked some weird article that's actually not, that's nullified. You said that now the presidency is vacant. So guess what? I'm actually the president of of America now, Robbie. I'm, um, Trump is no longer president. I, Abby Martin... I'm the president of the United States now, okay? Okay. Yeah, I, everyone, gonna, everyone accept that? So with, it's our legal right to take Trump, down Trump by any means necessary because he does right. will not recognize you as president. Right. Fuck yeah, dude. So China, now we need to call for China to come in, invade the U.S. and back me up, right? Install this violent military coup to propel me to become president of the United States. So please, I expect everyone to be in full support of this plan. Um, and just a, just an FYI, I mean, the opposition is so unpopular. So people come at me and they're like, Maduro's widely loathed. Everyone hates Maduro. Well, okay, that may be true that people don't like Maduro because, of course, how could you not reflect the leadership with like the economic turmoil that's been going on and been getting worse? Like, I understand that people are exasperated because the economic war is very real and uh, has very real-life effects. Um, but at the same time, he still is more popular than the opposition <laughs> because the opposition, um, people understand the fascistic character characteristics of the opposition, and that's why the opposition can't win elections. They can't really mobilize. Um, and so just to really drive this point home, um, Venezuela Analysis brought up that this poll by the opposition, an actual polling group hired by the opposition called Data Analysis, um, showed that this body, the National Assembly, has a disapproval rating of 70%. So why is it that this overwhelmingly unpopular body was able to appoint this rogue opposition leader as head president of Venezuela? Um, throwing the Constitution out, because let's, let's be real about what this means. This means that this guy is now going to be internationally protected. 
the U.S., all of these international bodies and NGOs are now going to just deal with this guy and act like he literally is the president, Robbie. Um, all of the rules are going to be thrown out. The Constitution is going to be thrown out. It's suspending all rights and laws that were just gained by this constituent assembly, this kind of revolutionary constituent assembly that just happened last year that had an overwhelming Democratic base. And it could potentially mean, let's be honest, it could potentially mean implementing fascist violence again on behalf of, of U.S. allies and proxies, Colombia, potentially the U.S. military. We know Trump loves to, he really wants to rape and pillage the countries that have resources. Um, if they are not going to be able to win and cement the rule and oust Maduro, um, and, and you see, you know, it could potentially turn into a civil war type situation because they cannot impose this new leadership. Um, the Chavistas and Colectivos that are heavily armed are not just going to fucking sit back and let this happen. As Maduro has clearly elucidated, like he has backing and they are fucking armed. So what's going to happen next? Um, will it be another Panamanian invasion? Operation Just Cause 2.0. Yeah. We don't know where this is going to go. Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of actually in a way that would be very much Trump style um, to do something right. like that. Uh, and man, I mean, during the government shutdown, when his popularity ratings are, are getting lower, even Michael Moore talks about this. I mean, this is what a lot of people, you know, it's the wag the dog concept. It's like when the president's unpopular, you know, the government's unpopular, start another war. Right. It's, it's the oldest adage. I mean, so, yeah. We need to take this extremely seriously. And I already saw some, you know, a person from We Are Change tweeting out stuff that looked like proper, like right-wing propaganda about it, showing, like, a million people cheering that this guy has been uh, selected to be president or whatever. Oh, are you surprised? We no, are I mean, it went just, to it's the just supermarkets like, and showed like is, the, they pretended like it was like the walking dead. This is going to be interesting because this might be where all these things collide. Why was the right being artificially boosted to be like, they're anti-interventionists. They want to stop wars. Is lowering the bar of what being anti-war means part of the strategy by the war makers to get them to more easily able to start wars? You can't get rid of anti-war sentiment in the country. But what you can do is distort the playing field to make it seem like people who have terrible morals are actually anti-war. So you like muddy the waters and make people like confused about what actually being anti-war is. <laughs> and like siphon the energy. Into exactly. Exactly. Supporting no, it's so people bizarre, like throwing, throwing all of your weight behind candidates again, as yeah. if somehow change has ever happened from the top down. I mean... The the craziest thing is that the Democrats, again, I always like the craziest thing about it. It's like so not crazy and completely normal. But the Democrats um, have completely endorsed this. The Democratic Party has said, absolutely, um, we do not recognize Maduro as a legitimate leader. So that's happening. And I think that our job... Um, First and foremost, please inform yourself. Please watch the reports that we did on the ground. We risked our lives to really tell the other side of the story for you, like t so we can understand what is happening and better fight against it. So we all need to understand um, and comprehend the situation, right? The problems and how the U.S. is actually affecting it because we know that the sanctions have completely exacerbated the problem. We know that the U.S. government has paid tens of millions of dollars to these opposition forces over the past 20 years. 
um, the training of the Colombian cartels, like all of this fits together. But the most important thing for us to do other than be informed is stand in a unified fashion against regime change. Um, and it doesn't matter if you think Maduro's corrupt, like this is what we need to do. So join local actions. There's actions going on everywhere. There's, a, there's an emergency rally being called tomorrow in LA. We're going to go. Um, link up with local groups and, and even just voice yourself online. Counter some of this propaganda because it's really wall to wall. And we need to correct the record here because no one else is really doing it. And, and, it's, and it's gotten to the point, kind of like North Korea, where people have been so propagandized that they're saying, well, we have to do something, right? Well, this, this has to be good, right? Um, yeah, I don't support coups. Yeah, I don't like Trump, but like Maduro's bad. So whatever's going to come of this has to be better than what they have. That's where people are at. And we really, really need to break through that um, because millions, millions of people's lives are at stake. Tens of millions of people's lives are at stake. And again, Venezuela is one of the only remaining countries in the world who actually stands up to the United States' rhetoric, who opposes many things symbolically and, and practically that the U.S. empire represents. So, Just it's like one of the last up. remaining independent countries. Yeah, we need to stand up for countries that oppose the United States. And, you know, even if you disagree with... I, some of the ways that they run their own country, I still think it's important. The U.S. still does not have a right to do those things. Kind of a, a fizzled out there at the end of my <laughs> point, but um, keep going. Yeah. No, it's, it's fine. I mean, we can move on to some more crazy headlines, too. I mean, the trans military ban was just upheld by the Supreme Court. You know, this is this is the last kind of vestige of you know protection from from the high highest court in the land these kings and queens who determine what what should be the law of the land well guess what they fucking upheld the trans military ban and the muslim ban so that's where they're at and trump stacked all the courts already there's already a full-fledged coup going on on behalf of the federal courts and speaking of trump's rhetoric fascinating tweet someone pulled up from 2016 of trump saying I will fight for LGBTQ people like Hillary is going to bring in people that are going to threaten you. And like someone brought up the point, is he talking about like Muslims? Like Hillary's going to bring in Muslims that are going to threaten your oh, way yeah, of, of life? Like is. what was he? Yeah. It was just like a weird tweet that at first you're like, oh my God, like Trump was actually trying to pretend like he was more LGBTQ friendly than like Hillary. And then you're like, wait, well, that's, he was actually making this about Muslims. How weird. Well, it's fascinating because a lot of people, I mean, I went back and I, I watched my own documentary series recently, Very Heavy Agenda, and I, you know, I forgot that a large part of the beginning of part two is about how the neocons hijack gay rights to use it as a wedge issue against Russia for geostrategic propaganda. But the right wing, Islamophobic right wingers also try to hijack gay rights and like use it against the left. And what you just said is kind of in that flavor. Tulsi Gabbard actually said, and I just went on Porkins Policy to discuss some of her platforms, but she said, well, we're going to discuss this later, that part of the reason she changed her view on gay rights, um, you know, is because she evolved with the times, but she justifies her past views by saying, I didn't want to impose my, like, will on people like the Iraqis did when it comes to like, what your religious beliefs should be. And I just thought that was just such a bizarre thing to, to jump to something that has an Islamophobic flavor to right. explain your past anti-gay views. Very odd. It's almost like the right-wing talking points 
there's a lot of talking points actually in that mold. I mean, I remember one of the most boiled down base level ones was like, well, what? You're pro-gay, but you don't want to go kill ISIS and they're throwing gay people off buildings? <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. So it's like, we got to That was like a them. Jamie Kerchick what, thing. That was like... Yeah. Yeah. Or saying that like Hamas is anti-gay, so therefore we should destroy Palestine. Or <laughs> just like crazy it's like shit you're, like It's that, like you're you know? not a leftist. You're not progressive if you support Palestine because Hamas um, is anti-gay. It's like, wait, what? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Nuts. Uh, do you want to talk about this Jack Dorsey interview that I didn't get a chance to see? Oh, yeah. I mean, just really quickly, Jack Dorsey's the CEO of Twitter. He's bizarre as hell. He's even weirder than Elon Musk. <laughs> just, a, just a wacky dude, but he kind of pontificates in this weird way in this Huffington Post interview with this journalist, Ashley Feinberg, I think her name is. And he kind of explains away the whole like Alex Jones ban in a weird way because he acknowledges how creepy it was that the tech companies kind of coordinated this purge, right? Interesting. And then the woman confronts him about Candace Owens because if you remember, Jack Dorsey did personally interject personally, himself in I that remember. whole kind of hubbubaloo where he was like, Candace Owens, I personally apologize to you. You are not far right because Twitter characterized her as far right. And he kind of praised Laura Loomer in a strange way. The woman who just um, handcuffed one of her arms to one of the doors of Twitter headquarters, which didn't do anything except made her look like a, a huge ass. And it wasn't even um, the headquarters, he, he which praised was funny. Her. I just thought it was yeah, funny yeah, yeah. that uh, the headquarters is in San Francisco. Like all the all oh, the right. main Silicon Valley companies, Google, Facebook, they're all headquartered here in the Bay Area. But she chained herself to like the like side office in New York City or something. It was so pathetic. And she's banned from the platform, so whatever. But it is funny that he's just like he's like, I respect her fight. He's like, I really respect her pushing back on us. And he's and, and she's just like, Well, she wasn't fighting that hard. She only handcuffed herself to one of the doors. And he's like, Yeah, he's like, I just really appreciate when people speak up when they think that someone's done them wrong. It's like Fascinating. Okay. Uh, and then just really quickly about Laura Loomer, how hilarious is it that she, you know, tried to break into Nancy Pelosi's house in Napa literally scaled the fence, tried to break yeah. into her doors, made this giant stink about it. And what was weird, Robbie, is comparing that to the Antifa protest at Tucker Carlson's house, I didn't really hear much neoliberal freak out about how it was terrorism and she's a terrorist. Yeah. So I, where was that? I, I thought it's very interesting. I mean, it clearly shows that the outrage over that protest at Tucker Carlson's house was a manufactured right-wing op. 100%. 100%. So let's just get that out of the way. I mean, like, there's no doubt. And that people like Gab Tulsi Gabbard and Stephen Colbert mm -hmm. and all these liberals saying, like, this is really crossing the line with Tucker Carlson. You know, even some people were calling it terrorism. But I find Jack Dorsey weird in the sense that a lot of people have said he's a Nazi collaborator because he doesn't ban certain people like Richard Spencer and David Duke. But I feel like he's almost like a contrarian guy in Silicon Valley who wants to act like he's neutral in comparison to people like Zuckerberg and these other people who are like openly more liberal. I mean, that's what it seems like to me. Like he just seems like he has, he wants to be different and it could just be an ego thing. And, tw and you know, Twitter is as bad as it is in a lot of ways. It's one of the only holdouts on the internet for certain things. Like they still allow you to post explicit, like X-rated pornography openly on their site, which is actually kind of shocking. 
that even Tumblr banned that. I mean, so that's something, you know, kind of unique about them. And then also it's mostly chronological still where it shows you the tweets in the order that it comes up. It's not completely dictated by an algorithm, but we've already seen like it go from completely chronological to like being sort of like half and half, like algorithm, whatever. So there is something unique about Twitter and the way that it's run. And But I don't know about Jack. I mean, he just seems like a weirdo. Um, it even weirds me out that he kind of almost looks a little bit like a, like me, but like a much fitter like dad <laughs> version of me or something. And he also sent his beard hairs to Azealia Banks so she can make a magical amulet out of it. Um, so I don't even know, man. I mean, Silicon Valley is just so fucking pretentious and stupid. Um, you know, I don't. Did even you see know. Azalea Banks call Grimes uh, like a bag of nickels? She's or like, she smells like, like a, a roll of nickels. of nickels. I did see yeah. that. It was great. And then, yeah. and then Grimes is just like, "You're a cop. You're a narc. You're a narc." And she's just like, "Your boyfriend <laughs> wants to fuck me." She was like, "Elon Musk wants to fuck me." It was like very awkward. I was like, oh "Damn, my God, shit's going down in the Musk house." This is a weird Musk star fucker down, feedback dude. loop that all these like celebrities <laughs> interact with each other. It's like they must be just bored and lonely. It's like, I don't know. I mean, like what I, I just I don't even understand what someone like would be interested in meeting Elon Musk for. Like, have you heard him talk? He's a boring non-person. He didn't start I'd, Tesla. Yeah. He didn't. Everybody's like, oh, yeah, he's this genius. He started Tesla. No, he just like he someone else founded Tesla. It's on his company. He's just the CEO. So unreal. Yeah. Um I want to just really briefly mention Russia today. I'm gonna talk more about this when I know more because th- all I know is that um my former producer on Breaking the Set, Anya Parample, stayed at RT after I left. She's an amazing journalist, uh, very progressive, uh, you know kind of similarly to Lee Camp, Chris Hedges, Mike Papantonio. She was given editorial freedom and space to talk about her opinions and views and bring on people who were countering that mainstream media bipartisan consensus of foreign policy establishment in D.C. So I was really, really sad to see that her new show in question, which she crafted, hired the team for, really, you know, kind of engineered, was purged. Um, The show is still there. Correction on my part. The show exists her and her staff were purged and replaced with like pro-Trump right-wing idiots. And I'm and not even just pro-Trump. I mean, some of these people are actually Trump surrogates. So I don't know what's going on. It seems like there is a deliberate purge at RT to kind of capitulate to whatever the, the DNI and like um, the mainstream media says. Like they they want to become that pro-Trump network, then go ahead. But instead of embracing that radical discontent, fomenting radical discontent by showing, you know, uplifting both sides that are being marginalized by the mainstream media, instead of like embracing that model and continuing with that model and saying, fuck you, we're going to be a bigger, better, stronger propaganda network than you y'all can ever be. Instead of that, they've like cowered under pressure, I guess, because of Farah. Um, but that's, that's what it seems to me, Robbie. I mean, we have Lionel almost daily now. The crazy thing about him is he went from being like a conspiracy kind of intellectual, uh, AM radio talk show host who got into nine 11 conspiracy stuff. and would like starts lots of discussions about it on his show. 
Um, and then he evolved into being like a pro-Trump bootlicker QAnon Pizzagate guy. And he is such a fucking f- flaming dumpster. I mean, it's insane um, how much airtime RT has given him. And it's just odd, too, because it's like, why does RT have all these things injected into it that just like discredit the good content that they do? It doesn't make any sense. It just seems like terribly mismanaged. And they also hired an ex-Fox News guy recently to have his own show, Rick Sanchez, the token Hispanic guy on Fox News. He's now at RT. And so is Steve Malsberg from Newsmax, a neoconservative adjacent organization. Newsmax, Steve Malsberg's show on Newsmax. I know this because I edited dozens of clips from his show to get choice neocon sound bites. Steve Malsberg treated Jamie Kerchick, Bill Kristol, and Eric Edelman all from the Foreign Policy Initiative like they were royalty when they come on his show. He loved those guys. So here you have a neocon talk show host, who's also a Zionist as well, moving to RT with his own show. What the fuck is that about? Why? Who's managing this, this network that's putting on a neocon apologist? It's like they've never even had someone like that bad before. I mean, they just keep getting worse and worse. Like you were saying, they used to pull like uplift the libertarian angle like so they would uplift yeah. libertarian voices and like left socialist voices and now they're just become echoing fox news yeah it's it's strange very strange i mean because at the very least they widen the debate in an interesting way you know um but now it's like wow so they're just totally compromised now I mean, and with the exception of some shows, like Lee Camp show, the Chris Hedges show, yeah, some of the shows on the network are still good. Um, Mike Papantonio, I believe, still has a show, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. that's it, pretty much. Right, right. That's pretty. That's. I mean, they still do break interesting news, like headlines. Like they're first on the scene, and some just, you know, in, during certain events. Like I think they weren't the, one of the first ones to. I feel like one of the school shootings, like they were like one of the first to break stuff on Twitter that I had seen and stuff like that. So they're valuable for that reason. But like, yeah, their social commentary, their editorial stuff, it's getting way more right wing and pro Trump and the conspiracy stuff, even that they put out on their network is, is mostly of the bad sort of disinfo variety now. Yeah. It's like, they're just falling back into the mold of what, again, what they're called, which is like, you know, Trump is a Putin puppet, so why not have RT just emulate Trump? It's like, wow, really? Like, this is what you guys are choosing to do <laughs> when when Russia's painted in this cartoonish way and, like, this relationship with Trump and Putin is completely, yeah. you know, this fantasy. And it's like you guys are just really not doing a very good job to counter that in any way at all. So True. Um, and, I mean, I, I think I really started to notice the right-wing slant maybe even a year or two ago probably two years ago when it started with the way they would cover the Syrian refugee crisis and Mm. they would sort of definitely not maybe overtly, but they did take more of a right wing slant on that whole issue, like across the board on the network with the exception of some of the left editorial shows. But in general, um, that's when I started to notice it. And I remember being really bothered by it back then, uh, I mean, as far back as like 2016 or, you know, even earlier maybe, but it's just, you know, it's just slowly creeped up. And now that Trump's in office, it's, it's odd because you would think that 
they would want to take more of a genuine left position to counter Trump. Um, but no, that's not what they're doing. They're taking like a Fox News approach. That's really strange. Um, just another quick shout out for Fahrenheit 11.9. When we talked about it on the podcast the last time you had shown me, I think the first 30 minutes or so, absolutely amazing movie. Um, but, but really encourage people to check it out because there's another movie within that movie, which is the Flint crisis, which you discussed and just seeing what Obama did in Flint, drinking the water, sitting there with Governor Snyder, and how revolting it is um, that he just stabbed the black community in Michigan in the back um, who were dying and who are brain damaged forever. I mean, we're talking about thousands of children who had falsified documents from the U.S. government agencies falsifying lead levels in their blood. Yeah. Um, and they were being told that they had safe lead levels and they were like eight times higher. So these kids were poisoned. Um, this is terrorism. And this happened. And Obama went there and drank the water um, or pretended to drink the water. And then everything's fine, Robbie. And then you have people like Trevor Noah repeating Flint's fine. So I can't even fathom how disgusting what Obama did was. Um, it makes me sick, viscerally sick but it really sheds an important light on why we have Trump. Shit like this, um, Flint, an economically distraught, you know, already went through that horrible shit with all the um, emergency managers where Governor Snyder just like yeah. totally like threw out all of the elected bodies and declared some stupid national emergency. And then it wasn't even like a normal, you know, crisis where government ineptitude and um, collusion with private entities. No, it was like, a, a, like some corporate like CEO from like gateway computers, that's who Governor Snyder was, yeah. somehow usurps the Democratic bodies of the entire state of Michigan, plants in all of these corporate heads, and takes, it literally creates a crisis out of thin air. Yeah. Um, says, says, oh, by the way, all of these pipes that you guys have been using for the last hundred years that, that you know, feed into the fresh water that feeds into the entire country, like the, the world's largest fresh water source, we're just going to switch because I just want to fucking make money. It was yeah. like seriously just a fucking money-making scam to plant these new pipes in there, this corrosive lead-laden yeah. water. Well, it's this almost like insane. And I think he actually even cuts in clips about from the movie Chinatown in um, in Fahrenheit 11.9. Have you seen Chinatown? Uh-uh. It's it's a I mean it's a it's got a lot of layers to it, but the movie in the background there's a political like thriller sort of plot about how there's this corrupt scheme by city officials, like working with organized criminals to, to like use some kind of like privatized water supply to LA and like damage or sabotage like the regular one. So this is like a theme that's gone, you know, all th throughout history. It's not like a new thing, but it is what if one of the interesting things that really you have to wonder, and there's definitely some unanswered questions that remain is why, like how risky would it have been for Obama to be like, yeah, a, a huge disaster happened here. This was negligence on a, a mass scale. This governor needs to be held accountable. Like why, what is it that made it Obama not do that? And mm -hmm. the reason is there's obviously some powerful, very wealthy forces in this country that would prevent something like that from happening. And I'm not saying that Obama 
was forced to go and pretend to drink the water because some corporation told him to. I'm almost talking about in the same way that journalists are like self-censored. Right. A politician like Obama, he knows how that, whatever that structure is, it's in place. Like you, you can't take down governor Snyder. It's like connected to too many different things. I mean, I'm just speculating here. I don't know exactly what that was, but it's fascinating insight into how fucked we are. Right. Like the fact that that happened and can happen. Exactly. And will continue to happen. Right. Like if Obama was willing to go to an audience full of um, mostly black people who are affected by this poison water and pretend to drink the water and he's willing to do that. Oh my God. Like, and I'm not saying Obama's held to some magical standard or like that he, you know, he's not capable of doing something that monstrous, but it's just really, it's shocking on so many levels. It was a lot. Yeah. It was a lot as the first African-American president to do that because he didn't have to go there. Exactly. Um, Why? Yeah. He didn't even have to go there. He could have just ignored it. He didn't have to acknowledge it. it. Yeah. Right. One last comment about the movie. At the end of the movie, um, it, it shows headlines from the New York Times downplaying Hitler before Hitler got elected. Or actually, I think when Hitler got elected, of course, he was on the front cover of Time magazine. He was heralded everywhere, right, from corporate media back <laughs> 100 years ago. Yeah. But what was fascinating is the downplaying of his potential actions based on his rhetoric. Very similar to Trump today. Yeah. Talk about that. Oh, his anti... Yeah, the, the best one was like... Like, yeah, his aunt, it was like, it almost seemed like an article that was written like in modern times, like the tone of it was kind of almost like this nonchalant. Yeah, Hitler's rhetoric is like pretty anti-Semitic, but like to think he's going to follow through on it and like he's serious about that stuff might be like a little wrongheaded. We shouldn't take him that seriously on his anti-Semitism. <laughs> he's just I mean, doing totally it to get votes, Robbie. This, what? He's just doing it to get votes. Yeah. I mean, it's really fascinating. So there, I mean, for people to say there aren't any parallels to Hitler, I mean, there, there, there are for sure. But, you know, Michael Moore does something dumb in the movie and shows like Trump talking about golf dubbed over a Hitler speech. And it's just <laughs> That's like, That's the okay, worst dude. part of the whole movie. <laughs> okay, dude, stop. Like you, you were, you were, stop while you're ahead. You had some really good points. The historians being interviewed, I thought was one of the stronger Parts that was great. That were that was less great. than that was one 9-11 away from full fascism. That was brilliant, yeah. And and yeah. I like how she was just saying, we we don't need to have a perfect replication of history to understand and have history be instructive to learn from it and apply tendencies that we've already lived through. And so I think because Trump isn't Hitler, people are think it's just so hyperbolic to even allege like, that he could be our Hitler in a sense. Yeah. Um, but it's funny that, you know, the historian really broke that down because so many similarities between authoritarians of the, of the past match Trump exactly to a T. And I mean, throwing out these trial balloons, for example, like he's already been saying several times that he doesn't want to leave the presidency. Basically, he's been throwing out trial balloons saying he wants a third term. Well, yeah, that's... And he's been doing this at rallies. Yeah. Fascinating stuff that he... Yeah. That Michael Moore cut together that little collage. Actually, that was one of the more unique uses mm-hmm. of Trump footage in the whole movie because that never even crossed my mind. Like, I don't even remember any of that from the election. Did you? And it's, no, I don't. And he he even said a couple times, he said, I don't ever want to leave. And he said, oh, of course, I'd never do that. He was like, unless you guys want me to. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I mean, it, it's, it was a good, it was an interesting premise because Michael Moore's able to be like, well, was he just joking? 
You know, let's we look at know. all these. Yeah. So I, I, I thought that know. was smart, too. Was he joking about beheading people like ISIS? I mean, we don't know where the jokes yeah. stop. So, he just carries a big we, stick, Abby. He is anti-war, and he wants <laughs> Robbie, to make that's, peace. Robbie, that's why we have peace with North Korea, because Trump used the big stick approach, just like John oh, yeah. Bolton. Mm-hmm. Fire and fury He's, like the world has never seen. Man, that must have really scared Kim Jong-un. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Threaten annihilation, and all those people will just um, bow to you. So, uh, of <laughs> this is always one of my favorite holidays, Martin Luther King Day, Robbie. It's one of my favorite holidays because of how anyone from any side of the political spectrum can use and exploit Martin Luther King's words to fit whatever the hell their political agenda is. It's quite fascinating. And, you know, I saw everyone from the Heritage Foundation about how MLK was really conservative to Mike Pence using MLK's rhetoric to defend the wall (laughs) to then, of course, the official CIA and FBI accounts on Twitter honoring him, which is laughable because the CIA and FBI were eavesdropping on him, um, surveilling him, ransacking his house, um, exploiting his life in so many ways, sending him threats. Um, and they also, the FBI sent him a letter because he did have an extramarital affair, basically documenting his extramarital, um, indiscretions and saying, you should probably kill yourself. Well, I mean, that's the you could speak about it in figurative terms. Did they rile people from the public up enough to cause James Earl Ray to want to murder Martin Luther King and, and he succeeded? Or did the government actually have something to do with his with his actual assassination? And what's interesting, I don't think most people realize this, this is different from the JFK assassination, even though there have been examples recently actually where this son I think of Robert Kennedy actually met recently with Sirhan Sirhan and was like I Mm -hmm. don't think that he was acting on his own or I mean there's some interesting things that have occurred in the family line of JFK even Jackie Onassis said some things that if you looked at him from a certain light may have uh, alluded to the fact that she did not believe the Warren report and she thought that Maybe even Lyndon B. Johnson had something to do with his death. But the MLK stuff is interesting because many people in his family actually think that he was murdered by the FBI or someone in the U.S. government, like a plot from within the U.S. government. And they did a civil trial um, that was actually preceded over by Judge Joe Brown, who later became a famous TV judge. Um, but he was a very well-respected judge before that. William Pepper, attorney, is like a studied uh, sort of, he's been studying the field of this MLK assassination stuff for a long time. They did a trial and basically found that the government was responsible for his death and that James, there's no evidence actually that James Earl Ray was involved in the assassination. Not even just that he was involved in a larger plot, but that he wasn't even involved at all. And the family, apparently many members of MLK's family have met James Earl Ray in person and have like personally forgiven him and stuff. So that's just something that that's all real stuff. I'm saying that's not like, you know, you can fall whatever, which way you want on the actual facts of if you think MLK was assassinated by the FBI or someone in the government or not, but that stuff I'm describing actually happened. His family did, subscribe to a lot of those theories that the government was involved and you read you watch interviews about judge joe brown talking about mlk now and 
I mean, they're fascinating. I mean, he describes how he thinks that the FBI used two hit squads to do it. He goes in all this detail. But I'm not studying enough in it to know, you know, to be able to speak like in an educated way. But I just know Mm -hmm. that this sort of trial was done, I think, in the 90s. And so there's some interesting things to look into there. It is interesting when you go through this period, this really hardcore period of civil unrest. You know, we're coming off the heels of the civil rights movement, this kind of backlash reactionary wave going into the Reagan era and just a wave of assassinations of like revolutionary, visionary black and leaders, you know, or radical leaders. Yeah. I mean, what did that do to the psyche of, of Americans and just to the movement? I mean, how much did that just crush people? Well, people like our parents. Yeah. I mean, it's so crazy that, and I think one of the only sort of pieces of culture or art that captures the, that emotion, what you're describing, is the Oliver Stone's film JFK, which shows Jim Garrison opening, the movie opens with him seeing the JF, you know, the news of the JFK assassination on TV, or someone tells him that the president was just killed. And then throughout the movie, as the years pass, he watches RFK get assassinated live on TV. And then he hears about the MLK assassination live on TV. And it shows his sort of em- the emotional impact like hit him in this traumatic way each time it shows it. And then you sort of realize, wow, like our parents experienced these series of traumas where these sort of figures that were so popular in certain ways and controversial in other ways were just murdered like one after the other. Can't even imagine what that was like. Oh my God. And especially what we know MLK was planning to do, Robbie, because at the time that he was assassinated, he was the most loathed black man in the country. I mean, according to Gallup polls, his popularity waned. His unfavorability ratings were like 63% in 1966. Um, He was discarded. He was ostracized. He was hated. Um, Because why? He was militantly radical. He was arrested several times. He was a militant radical who who encouraged civil disobedience, shutting down the machine. Um, He called out the U.S., rightly so, as the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. He linked the struggles of class <laughs> society he, to militarism, to rampant imperialism. It's nuts. Um, the Vietnam War really changed him. He was able to understand that a nation that spends all of its money on, on militarism and death to destroy the sovereignty of other nations is going to suffer at home. Well, and and how far it, we've gone since then. Just, just as a really quick aside, if you think about it, it's almost like the inverse populism message of Trump. Mm-hmm. Because Trump is saying... We let those people over there kill each other. Why are we spending all this money over there? We just seem to like make our country better. Mm. I mean, it's a weird in like a like a amoral inverse of like the things you're saying MLK was sort of ending his legacy on. And especially because Trump expanded the military to the biggest budget ever, the biggest size, and is actually yeah. creating a new branch of the military. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing logically makes no sense. I mean, you create more of a, a stronger military industrial complex, then there's going to be more wars. Right. That's what Eisenhower was saying. He wasn't saying the military industrial complex is a, is a problem. It's gotten too big. He wasn't just saying that. He was saying that it's going to actually create an incentive for war. Right. Period. <laughs> like, that's how this right. shit works. 
Yeah, and the last thing that MLK was planning was the Poor People's March on D.C. He was going to shut down the entire capital with an Occupy-style civil disobedience in mass. My God. And they were not going to leave until their demands were met. Can you imagine wow. what that would have done to change the course of history? Wow. What MLK was moving towards, it would have been even crazier and, and change society and even more. So. Oh my God, it's, it's amazing. I mean, and just to show you where he was at, his last sermon before being assassinated was called Why America May Go to Hell. Oh my God, amazing. So good. And I'm pretty much an so atheist good. and that's an amazing <laughs> message. I know, and it's just been so whitewashed. We were talking about this the other day, just like in school. We all learn about MLK. Again, we all celebrate MLK Day. It's a federal holiday, but no one really understands his message. No, and they Still. they put it in a neat little tidy box. And that's why kind of when he got killed was so convenient for people like J. Edgar Hoover and all these government forces who felt very threatened by him and the societal order or whatever that felt threatened by him. That's why it's so convenient that he died when he did because it's it's like... You could just encapsulate it and put it in a box that he was just for equal rights for whites and blacks. He just wanted everybody to get along, and he had a dream. End of story. He had a dream, Robbie. And that's it. And I mean, that's what, what the that's dream what was we learned in school. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I literally did not know any of this stuff about Vietnam and poverty and how a lot of these things actually crossed over into each other in the 60s until I was like in my late 20s. Uh, I don't know if you already mm -hmm. mentioned this. The CIA actually tweeted out something about one of his speeches on MLK Day, like celebrating him. <laughs> just like, fuck this shit. I mean, and just and uh, just to clarify, I mean, three years after MLK was assassinated by, you know, James Earl Ray, we don't know. The, the family alleges that maybe the government was involved and there's evidence to back that up. But we do know that the actual Chicago police and FBI did kill Fred Hampton. Oh, Three yeah, years exactly. later, the Black Panther Party's deputy chairman. Yeah. So again, just just cutting off at the knees another revolutionary black leader very soon after MLK died. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, we think of only these big gargantuan figures, but Fred Hampton is also in the line of these leaders who were assassinated. Yeah. And the fact that that one's an open police murder is, you know, even more disturbing. Not yeah. to say that some of these other ones aren't also some kind of government hit job, but. Just disgusting. Yeah. Um, let's talk really briefly about the March for Life and this native um, elder being harassed by the MAGA kids because, of course, it's been belabored everywhere. I, I can't remember the last time I saw a story go this viral, so I'm sure you guys have heard all the hot takes yeah, but for I like a week straight, this is the like story. a week. Um, aside from how Ben Shapiro was using the platform to actually sell Q-tips for his live podcast, um, the only other thing that came out of the March for Life was this viral video that we initially saw for what it is. MAGA youth um, chanting hysterically, ripping their shirts off, surrounding this elderly Native American veteran 
who's just sitting there beating a drum, singing a prayer song, and they're all doing the tomahawk hand, mocking him, and the kid is just sitting like five inches from the guy's face with a shit-eating grin. So we all saw the video. We pretty much saw exactly what it was for what it was. And then, um, oddly enough, just like the right wing tends to do very well, they... I, well, the kids, first of all, hired a PR agency, but the right wing changed the narrative immediately, made it so that the kids were really the victims and that some other totally unaffiliated group called the Black Israelites that were like standing there that were just like heckling each other. Which the right wing media and the parents of the kids mm-hmm. called Black Muslims for like two days. Black Muslims. Black Didn't Muslims even... are really who, who caused this. It's yeah. like, OK, a totally unaffiliated group standing to the side heckling each other this native indigenous march with like three people comes in the middle and just stands there so this broader video comes out and then everyone has a mea culpa all the neoliberals again jamie lee curtis even i was wrong i should never have done what i did i i was totally wrong i didn't see the full video the full video is much more complicated well that's weird because i watched the full video and nothing was changed it was the same exact thing that we had seen in the initial video. No, the native guy didn't go up and confront the kid. He just was standing there. The kid went up to him. But it's so weird how it's like, even though you see this with your own eyes, the, the, the misdirection worked. The, the narrative got hijacked by the right wing and they were able to successfully maneuver it away so that everyone's confused now, yeah. apparently. When really, we all trusted what Abby. we saw with our... But Robbie, we all saw it with our own eyes and we should have trusted our own eyes. It's so funny because it's... it's for, for one thing, the black Israelites are notoriously notorious for being like provocative... Um, they do things in public like the LaRouche pack does or even kind of like Alex Jones-esque where they will just start like insulting people around them. Like I've, I I haven't seen it in person, but I've watched video. Like I think even Louis Theroux did something on them years ago, like maybe like 25 years ago now. And so they've been around. Of for the black long- Israelites? Yeah. yeah, they've been around forever. Like they're, they're extremely fringe. They, nobody like takes them seriously, but yet. That somehow has been able to steer the entire argument away from the fact that these like fucking crazy like Lord of the Flies, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Trump bootlicking children were all like mocking this Native American guy because a black Israeli yelled something to them and called one of the kids like a cracker over a megaphone. And that's why they mock the Native American guy. That's basically the right wing's argument yeah. at this point. Yes. So it's yes. like, you're ignoring the black racism. They provoke them. And then the, it's like, dude, I mean, yeah, the mainstream media is dumb always. But that doesn't mean that those kids were not like crazy fucking like mob mentality assholes. And then I saw oh someone God. else being like, or no, I saw someone posting a picture of the same Catholic high school where the students were wearing blackface at a basketball game. They're like, and it was like minstrel style. Yeah, no, it was straight up minstrel theater style blackface. And then someone, someone from the right was like, oh, I guess you don't know about like being like blacked <laughs> out for basketball, like playoffs at high schools all over the country. You're so like taking this out of context. Like all high schools do this. It's like, what do you, t- wait, they do? All high schools have like their students wearing minstrel theater blackface during a certain season of basketball. Holy shit. That's a serious issue. 
So they just, I mean, but then, then the right is just making the turn into this issue where it's like, they're threatening children. They're trying to get children killed, you know, because people are trying to like dox the kid who was like in the Native American guy's face the hardest. And then Jack Posobiec was like, um, oh I can't believe without any evidence they're trying to like create a mob, a far left mob to get these kids killed or something. <laughs> then I was thinking, well, aren't you the same guy who periscoped from inside Comet Pizza that created a far right mob that eventually led to a guy bringing a gun inside that same pizza parlor to try to save the kids who were trapped inside? You fucking piece of shit Trump surrogate. <laughs> Like, who the fuck are you, dude? You artificially signal-boosted little fucking cunt. I just, I love that all these people are, like, like seriously reading from a press release from this 15-year-old kid's, like, racist family. Like, lawyers that they hired. And I, like, see it. Jake Tapper published it. It was actually a Twitter moment. The kid's press release saying, we were harassed. And he was like, we were actually, we're singing along to the Native Americans song. This is the perfect thing for Jack Dorsey. He's probably like, yeah, let's create a Twitter moment for this. Because like, I am kind of like, I saw the whole video now and they took it out of context. Like he's trying to be like contrarian about it. (laughs) It's just so surreal, Robbie. It's, it's. I can't remember the last time that this happened as obviously, I mean, maybe, maybe 9-11, how like everyone knew that we were lied to. And then all of a sudden well, they, you're told that you're crazy when you're like, wait, well, somebody did an interesting breakdown. Somebody did an what? interesting breakdown. And I forgot her name. I, I wish I could credit the person who I saw this thread from on Twitter, but she was comparing it to the Heather Hayer incident because ah, the right yeah, yeah, immediately yeah. got us to question mm-hmm. what we saw with our own eyes because they kept like showing like Antifa hitting people and right. then... And then even the guy who shot a live round. Right. Remember that guy? Yeah. was like a KKK And they said, well, guy? he shot the flamethrower. Oh, yeah. No, then they were like, no, he provoked him because he had a flamethrower. It's like, dude, wow, we're really into wild territory. <laughs> the guy wasn't shooting like an actual flamethrower. He just had like a lighter in front of a spray can. I mean, right. <laughs> I mean, come on, man. I, I mean, I don't know. So, yeah. And then they even tried to get us to question the idea that the guy who was driving the car was scared, trying to fight for his life or something because, like, he was getting beaten up by Antifa. Remember they even tried to say that? Oh. Oh, of course. So People were arguing with me all day about very that. They were like, no. Kind of trying to get us to question what we see, I mean, basically. Trying to right, gaslight right. us. And what's crazy is that the media fell for it. Again, the alt-right has yeah. the ability to hijack the media and play right into their narrative and the media just uh, falls over backwards to do so and to try to create some sort of false equivalency um, between both sides and we see it over and over again but I recommend everyone to, to read the article on Deadspin called Don't Doubt What You Saw With Your Own Eyes. She just really breaks it down. Oh, yeah, um, I, li- I read that. It was a good, it was good a, breakdown. It was it. a good piece. Yeah, it was a good piece. So let's let's move on because I'm sure everyone's heard <laughs> all of this a million times. But I just I still find it really fascinating that people fall for it um, so easily. And and that, yeah, now now these kids are like going on like 60 minutes and stuff. And yeah, the mainstream media, if all you do is you're just like trying to debunk the way the mainstream media doesn't show the full context or anything. It's just it's just boring reporting. It's not really journalism. I mean, there's media analysis is important. You if you watch that whole video and you think that those kids weren't being like racist Lord of the Flies like jerks and it was kind of a creepy scene and you got more mad at the black Israeli, it's like that says that's just something is wrong with you. 
Yeah, watch I mean, there was like three of the black Israeli guys anyways. Like, it wasn't yeah. like a big group of them. And there was like 25 or 30 of these students, like all chanting and going, oh, yeah. oh, oh. I mean, yeah. so. Yeah, and the Gateway Pundits released like 25 articles in a row about like, this guy is not a real Vietnam vet. He's a fraud. Like, oh, well, and the kids to are going to kill them. themselves. They tried to swift oh my the Native God, American dude, you guy. See, same playbook, you dude. You should see the shit. Every time they use the same crap. It is nuts. I mean, look, and um, someone like Tim Katz yeah. is just like a full-on grifter, you know, in this area. <laughs> and he takes this morally superior stance, and he's just like, they're trying to get kids killed. They're trying to call them Nazis and racists. It's just such garbage, the kind of stuff he puts out online. And he acts like Crazy, he's this sort man. of neutral arbiter and he's in the middle and, oh man, it just makes me want to puke. I think his name's Nathan something, the Native American guy. He was crying. He was crying after the event happened, before he knew it would get viral. You know, because that's how intense the energy was of these kids. Yeah. It doesn't matter if they're 15. No. So it was really scary. Yeah. It, I mean, it is scary. I mean, it should, and it, and it is... I mean, I, I am one of those people now who, if I see someone openly wearing like a MAGA hat, and especially like in a group, it, it is kind of scary. It's weird. Yeah. I mean, if I saw, and, and this <laughs> is just me, if I saw a group of people walking down the street who seemed like they were ready to get in fights all wearing Obama hats, regardless of what right. race they were, I would be creeped out too. But imagine seeing a group of like 30, like 16-year-old boys yeah. all wearing MAGA outfits. Like all mobbing up on someone. Mobbed I mean, up. MAGA outfits, baby. Really, um, really odd. And I was trying to make that point and uh, people were like, oh, so I bet you didn't say this when like people wore like Obama hats. And it's like, actually, no, we, you and I did like a special in 2010, I think, going right. around Berkeley asking people why there was like so much Obama merchandise because he was like such so bad so far in his presidency. Right. Well, or just in Glenn general Greenwald questioning all- the idea of what is, why would you even wear merch from a sitting president? It's an odd thing. Right. It's just a right. battle. The, the f- facts don't matter. Right. This is just a war. Right. It really is an information war and they just want to win it. I mean, I've already decided that the left controls everything uh, you know, they have a, even a pedophile agenda now. So that's just a fucking full on war for them. I've never. Yeah, I guess this is a very disturbing aspect of the mass hallucinations and the ability to create a false paradigm and false reality that's just eaten up and never question. And that scares me because I see the truth as plain as day and I'm confused at how people don't. And are just falling back into these camps and just believing this shit. And it's it, it worries me because this is really how fascism does take root. It really is. Like, yeah. I mean, you, you just stop believing the truth and you start just becoming a tribalistic moron. Yeah. I mean, even, even to watch the conspiracy movements become so tribalistic and lockstep was very strange, too. And I think that was a very bad sign Crazy. because, you know, conspiracies... You know, a lot of like fascism scholars and people like to say that when conspiracy theories really take root is another sign of like, you know, fascism or, you know, um, people being marginalized in society like the Jews. But Mm -hmm. I think what's more dangerous is that when the conspiracy theories get like lockstep. Right. And so intense. And they're all right wing. 
They're oh, all yeah, like and all, especially like all right wing that reinforce and prop up the president of the United States. That's a whole other ball game. Um, and that is really there's a real path to fascism there just by that. But in and of itself. I was going to mention just the AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, just her, the viral nature of her existence, I find fascinating and very disturbing. Um, But I don't really want to go into that too much because she is so viral in such a weird way uh, that I find just super gross um, and exploitative. But I kind of dovetails into the 2020 race because, you know, I just saw a clip of this guy on Tucker Carlson who was a former FBI assistant director. He was talking about her and he said, quote, when I first got into the FBI, one of the missions of the FBI and its counterintelligence efforts was to try to keep progressives like this out of government. <laughs> huh. So it's just a funny admission from someone from the FBI that not too long ago they were actively trying to prevent progressives and socialists and, you know, people like her from serving any sort of office in the entire country. So very startling admission. We already know that that's the case. And it sort of does beg the question, like, if there are forces in the government that are trying to prevent candidates from winning elections who threaten the establishment, who are like socialists, then how did Trump get in? I don't know. I mean, mm-hmm. no, I know. That's this what whole we were, idea that the deep Trump states won. against Trump. Yeah. I mean, isn't the deep state powerful enough to change, throw elections? That's what I was. That's what we were saying. We were like, the, okay, if Trump's really this wild card, he will not be allowed to win. And he fucking won. He won hard. It's it's and he might win strange. again. And it, I and mean, he might win again. Definitely makes me go down the rabbit hole when I think about that sometimes about mm-hmm. what you know how much Trump is actually benefiting these power sectors and as much as i love the fact that aoc is talking about you know she just said the other day that billionaires shouldn't exist as long as people are in abject poverty you go girl keep going but um i think that the whole fascination with her is really unfortunate and like this just the notion of her existence in congress is unfortunate because not only is it an absurd amount of pressure and expectations on just one person and like 400 people that are all, all awful well, there's a couple other in the Progressive Caucus who are good, too. But it all just reinforces this fake idea of reforming or radicalizing the Democratic Party in any way, shape or form. And despite this clear attraction from the youth for more left politics, the Democrats continue to isolate her and others in the Progressive Caucus, treat her like a pariah with these fantastical ideas that can never have legs. While the vast majority of this country agrees with those quote unquote crazy left politics. So then you have... The 2020 election, right? All of these people throwing their hat in the race for this multi-billion dollar shit show, dog and pony show. Um, And it's really scary, Robbie, because my God, we're in for a a dark time ahead. Because if Bernie does not run, we are going to have Trump again. I think it's pretty clear Bernie already is the candidate that leftists um, give up a lot like, he's already the compromise candidate. Let's just say that. So I truly think that, you know, Bernie really is the only person that has a chance to be Trump. Um, why? Because he has this movement, this base, this energy generated around him. I would say arguably way more so than Trump does at this point. Um, and no other candidate has that stamina and has that power behind them. Another thing about Bernie 
even though he is a compromise candidate for people like you and I who are staunch anti-imperialists, yeah, he's an imperialist, right? But the thing is, he has the best opportunity and he's the best person to actually call the masses to the streets. I mean, he's said this time and again. He's like, he's like, look, if I become president, we have to build a movement of millions of people in the street reinventing, like reinvigorating labor. We need to create a labor movement in this country. We need to create an anti-war movement in this country. And I think that, yeah, it might be a pie in the sky, like optimistic view, but I do think out of all the people that exist in government, like he would be the most responsive to mass movements. And we would be able to push him the most because you look at his record, whether it be fighting GMO for GMO labeling, whether it be fighting um, to provide veteran benefits for the Gulf War syndrome, mm-hmm. whether it be standing up um, against co- the corporate oligarchy, against the billionaires and calling out Amazon and, and really fighting for workers' rights. I mean, he has been there for the last 30, 40 years. You can, you can track his voting record. I yeah. can't say the same about these other people. Yeah, and especially if you look at the overall picture of him, he definitely represents something, you know, that you can say he represents a progressive agenda. Right. I can't argue against that. And just just from my own personal point of view, I have never been a huge fan of Bernie, but just based on what you just said, that he could generate the amount of energy needed to actually beat Trump is enough for me to be like, maybe I will consider voting for him. And in, in, if he wins the primary, but then the negatives, things that are stacked against him, I mean, the most obvious one is his age. And he doesn't seem like the kind of guy who would let a lot of people, even if he was running against Trump, run his campaign. He's kind of more shoestring budget about the way he does things. When he was getting a lot of donations during his primary run uh, last election, he didn't take a lot of private planes or he would like fly coach and stuff. So I'm just saying that that in a way might work against him too. The combination of his age and that, the fact that he wants to do like a more humble style campaign, doesn't want to be flashy about it, could work against him just because you maybe need a lot of, you know, Trump is a billionaire. But I mean, that's kind of superficial stuff. But the other negatives are that he was already sabotaged by the DNC Mm -hmm, the last mm -hmm. time. And he didn't stand up to it in the way that he really should have. And Trump, if he somehow gets through the primary, if they don't sabotage him, Trump could still use that against him to make him look weak. Right. That's a, and that's a really, I mean, Trump is savvy enough to be able to really cut deep with that, that why didn't you stand up against Hillary? Right. And the DNC. You could have won, Bernie. Like, you might even be president now or something. He could, like, really just just say weird shit to get inside his head. And I don't know. And I I honestly didn't see Bernie being very aggressive during his debates with Hillary. So I don't know how good of a debater he would be Mm -hmm. either. Mm -hmm. So those are working against him. So the more that I think about it, I don't know. You know, he is the best chance to be Trump. But also, Trump still has, I think Trump really does have this election to win like it's not his to lose like it's going to be it's going to be a huge challenge to beat him and statistically speaking let's remember that in the last seven elections there have only been two presidents bill clinton and barack obama elected despite only losing the popular vote once yeah that's how that's our democracy quote unquote so 
and and you were saying that statistically a Republican serving one term is kind of rare. In yeah, the last I mean Bush, George H. W. Bush was the last one out of uh, you know several previous presidencies. I think the Democrats have a higher statistical likelihood of only serving one term in in the modern age in terms of holding the presidency. So, yeah, that statistically works in Trump's favor, too. It's rarer for a, for a Republican to only serve one term in office. Well, let's go over who's thrown their hat in the ring and who might. Um, and let's kind of go over what we know about them already. Kristen Gillibrand, she was a neo-lib, actually more conservative, um, very generic, who... I guess, ran for office in upstate New York. And when she did years ago, she was an NRA toting conservative who was against amnesty for, quote unquote, illegals and for fiscal conservatism. So then you have her fast forward to today, where now she's running for president. Again, you know, a lot of these people, this is sheer opportunism, sheer just uh, media coups for themselves. But anyway, so she announced on on The Tonight Show with Stephen Colbert, that she's running, Robbie, why? Why is she running? She's fighting as a mother for other mothers. Well, that's a policy I can get behind. So vague um, and... So super what, like vague. Mothers Against Drunk Driving? What kind of <laughs> mothers for what? Like Mothers for, the, for, for, I don't know, dude. Like Just against fighting guns? for moms. If, but no, that's dude, the only she's th- an NRA. She has a good rating from the NRA. No. Huh. What are mothers generally, what do they get behind now besides like against drunk driving and guns or drugs? I don't know. I don't know. So now she's all, all of a sudden she's kind of echoing Bernie's sentiments saying Medicare for all. But the thing is we cannot trust this person. That's pretty obvious. So that's just a completely side note. I just remembered, I meant to mention this during our talk about how Trump's rhetoric doesn't match up with his policy. I was just watching debates where Trump uh, was arguing for not just Medicare for all, but universal health care for all in the debates. And Rand Paul was like, Mr. Trump, I don't know if you realize that the entire GOP platform has been <laughs> trying to like fight against single payer health care for like the last like 25 years or something. <laughs> well, and also Jared Kushner was like one of the main people putting out sicko. Oh, yeah. He screened so sicko. Weird. Yeah. That's so fascinating. These people just blow in the wind. They're just complete puppets and shills. Yeah. But, I mean, Trump has remained consistently sort of, like, racist, though, the whole time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, So it's like he blows in the wind and he, like, pretended to be a liberal for a while or pretended to be a Republican. But he's always been sort of racist and xenophobic. (laughs) He's always hated women and black people. Let's just get that out of the way. And Muslims. And, like, Asian countries, like the Japanese. He acts like he's, like, so enamored of, like, how— skilled they are but then like doesn't want them like like uh, meddling in our like economy <laughs> he talks about like japan a lot in the 80s like he's obsessed with them weird yeah i saw the montage of him just saying china a million times in one speech too um let's, let's cop. get <laughs> let's get kamala harris out of the way i think that the best articulation of her is that she's a cop <laughs> i'm not a cop She's a cop. I'm not a cop. (laughs) Like Leonardo DiCaprio in The Departed. I'm not a cop. Kamala Harris for the next four years. I'm not a cop. (laughs) (laughs) 
so it's so bizarre to me that she I didn't even realize where that meme or that accusation came from <laughs> that Kamala Harris is a cop is something that like a lot of people on the left just say now is like a passing thing. Uh, it's because she used to be a state prosecutor and she has also advocated for private prisons and like slave labor in prisons, which is kind of not surprising for a state prosecutor because a state prosecutor's job is to argue on behalf of the state and put you most of the time put people in jail and like defend the laws of the state. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. the thing. When she got into the position of attorney general in California, she was way more progressive. So she immediately kind of like capitulated to the establishment and became way more generic. But yeah, initially she was fighting the entire establishment and the Democrats around her, including Dianne Feinstein, to reject the death penalty. But once she got in, she started defending the death penalty and the three strikes laws, even though she had written a book that was like very rhetoric heavy being against all of these policies. Um, and she claimed that she was smart on crime, not tough on crime. But really, it's kind of indistinguishable when you look at her, quote unquote, smart on crime policies. And so Kamala Harris is basically like, a, like another Obama. She's slick. She's polished. She has real good rhetoric. But when it comes to the actual policies you really can't find a difference between her and someone like Nancy Pelosi. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, even and, Obama's yeah. like actual, you know, history wasn't as bad as hers. He wasn't a state prosecutor. He was like a constitutional yeah. law professor at Harvard. Like, but I don't know where, how much actual teaching he did, but um, so to me, she seems actually like she's worse than Obama. Yeah, and especially, you know, in a time when Black Lives Matter is so crucial and you really need a leader who's going to, you know, fight for black lives and against this kind of rampant police corruption and um, just extrajudicial assassinations of, like, unarmed black men in the streets every day. Yeah. Like, this is not that person. Um, and I fear that it's just going to be identity politics being ridden on that wave. yeah for all of these people, to be honest. And I can see the Democratic Party wanting, thinking that bringing a black woman to the forefront um, would be enough of like a, a powerful symbol to use against Trump in the election. But the problem is, again, if we think about the matchup, just matching Trump versus her, Trump has actually done some things to tokenistically like reach out, like the Kanye West visit to the White House was about criminal justice reform. So Trump could actually use that against Kamala Harris and be like, what, you flip-flopped on the death penalty. Like, first you were for it, then you were against it, then you were for it. I mean, there's things that Trump could do to kind of tear her down as well and make himself seem like he's better at criminal justice reform than she is or something. I mean, that's even possible. Oh, my God, I just remembered that Donald Trump invited the Covington Catholic kids to the White House. Oh, yeah, dude. I mean, they're all over. They're they're getting like NBC interviews now. Um, it's great. You believe that? It's like, I it just it's just so amazing because it's just like how Trump said the both sides thing, and like mm -hmm. it's just funny that he's just like he he, he knows exactly he what stupid kids. hot button issues. <laughs> I mean, didn't even invite Diamond and Silk to the White House. Oh God, I'm sure. I mean, he invited Lionel to the White House. You know, it's nuts what's happening, but. Should we get to uh, Beto O'Rourke? Beto? Yeah, man, you, you just have to explain this one because it is... Well, first of all, you explain before you Ted explain Cruz how thing. insane what he did was, I want to just say really quickly, I, I 
it was a he was hyped up a bunch. They were saying he was a new progressive darling. He could beat Trump in 2020. The thing is, he lost to Ted Cruz, one of the most loathed, disgusting, buttered up, oily looking like politicians in the entire country. He lost to him. So you want to take Beto O'Rourke and put him as the forefront of 2020 to beat Trump when Trump to he toasted Ted. He just crushed Ted Cruz in the primaries. That's the guy. So on top of that, I saw his concession speech because I was like, what is it about this guy that everyone's all jazzed up about? And I was totally blown away by how just the whole speech was just blither blather, Robbie. There was no substance. It was just total, like, just empty platitudes the whole time in blither blather. That's the best way I could explain it. There was nothing said at all. Well, so, this anyway. guy seems like he is the Ken doll white guy of the spread, the field. Kind of like, you know, the John Edwards or the Mike Pence-ish, even though Mike Pence kind of has always had gray hair. But imagine Mike Pence with darker hair. He's kind of like a Ken Doll-esque, square-jawed guy. This guy kind of almost more looks like a Kennedy. He right. resembles slightly like a someone from the Kennedy family. Is he related to a Kennedy or does he just look kind of like one? He just looks really good. Yeah, so he's got the look of like that white guy who's tapped into the public consciousness, who cares about the people, and who also happens to be kind of like a good-looking guy who knows what the hell he's doing on the side, like if he's married. I mean, we all remember John Edwards, you know, what happened to him. It all seemed to come crashing down. First, everybody was, like, making fun of the fact that he was being hyped up. Like, a lot of leftists on Twitter were mocking it. And I was like, who the fuck is this guy? I didn't even, like, know who the hell he was. And then, uh, like, a couple of weeks later, it just all came crashing down where he, when he posted this Instagram video of him getting his teeth cleaned in the dentist's office with his like mouth <laughs> gaping wide open, with, like with his tongue out and his and his gums visible and stuff, and he thought it was a great opportunity to interview his dental hygienist, who happened to be a Guatemalan immigrant, about her plight and sort of her story about immigrating here to this country, and. It's, I guess to him, the optics of that was it was like some kind of friendly gesture, like I'm getting down with the people, like I'm here getting my teeth clean. This is how comfortable I am with like people. He was trying to pull like an AOC, like, like I, I know social media, man. Like I know yeah. Snapchat. But not just the snap, not even just the social media thing, but just like trying to act like he's like one with the people, like he's interviewing right. her about her immigration story. But it just came off. It not only is disgusting that he has his mouth op gaping open and people Photoshop <laughs> amazing stuff like his, like blood shooting out of his mouth. I mean, it looked great. The Photoshops I saw. But she, oh but how disrespectful is it? If you actually want to do this, why not actually hire like a camera guy, talk to her, have a personal conversation with her and say, hey, would you be willing to... We'll rent a studio for a day and come and let me interview you. Yeah, let me show your house and yeah. your struggle and like let me like treat you like a human being. Instead, she's like doing cleaning his teeth while he's talking to her, and it's just like, what the fuck are you thinking, man? Oh, the man. optics were just insanely bad. Tone deaf as hell. Yeah, it was just uh, bizarre on so many levels. I mean, I don't, I didn't see any positive reactions to it from anybody. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, how insulting. Like a word, it would, I think you mentioned like it would be like if a cleaning lady was at my house who's like undocumented 
and I and as she's cleaning like my toilet, I'm just like live streaming her, and I'm yeah, like, like periscoping hey, like, her. Yeah, like dude, I'm here with like my maid. Yeah, um, that's like something that um, Paul Logan, that guy who like filmed the dead body in the in the hanging suicide forest in Japan, and was like laughing right, about right, it. Right, right, it's like something that that guy would do. Right. That's how like tone deaf <laughs> it is. Seriously. It's nuts. Yeah. Um, let's briefly mention Cory Booker because I don't actually know if he's running. The only thing that I have to say about him is that he's dating Rosario <laughs> Dawson. What Man. the hell happened? Huge step down from Eric Andre. He Good God. really is dating out of his league. Good God. And what is it with Cory Booker that's so off-putting? I mean, what is it that's just so un- unappealing about him? Can't put is my that finger he, on it. It's like he was incubated at like Bain Capital. He's like, it just seems like he was grown out of an incubator of like a bank or something, you know, like spit out in a suit, like born in it. Yeah. And he kind of has, I mean, you know, and maybe this is slightly inappropriate, but he almost seems like he is kind of like a doppelganger, like Obama ripoff or something. Right on Obama's success just by being, you know, who he is and that and just like didn't work out at all like he has zero charisma compared to obama i've never really heard him speak i think he tried to do the same thing obama did and did like this really uproarious convention speech and you know mm-hmm. that was kind of how obama catapulted himself into the political spotlight was that i think it was the 2004 convention speech maybe the dnc and uh, I remember hearing a Cory Booker speech and just thinking, wow, this guy really thinks very highly of himself. He's not pulling this off. <laughs> That's all I really remember about him. But yeah, he's he's a weird one. And like he was involved in some kind of campaign uh, scandal where he was like spending all this money on like jewelry or something that came out a few weird. years ago. Jewelry for Rosario. Like his donations were going to like Jewels. expensive jewelry. So let's move on to Elizabeth Warren because... I truly, truly think that she has blown it already with this Native American thing. I mean, it's really sad to say that, but I, I think Trump really hit it on the head there. And, um, you know, her, her filming this big campaign video with her getting like the genealogy test, claiming that she was Native American. And there was a state Senate candidate that was running who just a couple of years ago was like a rabid anti-abortion evangelical. Um, and then she kind of reinvented herself and is now like an progressive. And I mean, and that's totally different than Elizabeth Warren claiming that she's Native American. But another thing that this other candidate did was kind of adopt like a marginalized person's identity. Like I'm a poor Latina, you know, immigrant. And it's like, you're not though. Elizabeth Warren kind of did the same thing where it's like you, even if you do have Native American heritage, like you grew up white. Um, you, you kind of are adopting another person's identity and like claiming that you are part of that marginalized group. And I do know that she does have progressive ideals. I know that she actually has unequivocally denounced torture. So that's one leg up on Tulsi. Um, she has, you know, she, she, uh, has said really good things about the banks, but she's horrible on Israel. And that's another thing that I mentioned about, I forgot to mention about Kamala Harris. She's terrible on Israel. She was a featured speaker at APEC 2017. So, yeah. again, Bernie really does have the strongest rhetoric against Israel. Out well, of any and of these overall, people. I think even if you look at his voting record, it's overall better, too. But I can't, you know, I'm not sure about that. But, I mean, right. even compared to 
do you want to move into Tulsi Gabbard already? Yeah, we, yeah. I mean, do you have I anything mean, else to say about Elizabeth? I mean, because, I, other than the fact that Trump yeah. is going to fucking trounce her. Right, right. She, she I mean, a, she doesn't have a chance in hell. I think even Kamala Harris has a better chance against Trump if you're just looking at it from a, a you know, political game theory point of view. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't think Elizabeth Warren has a chance in hell. And I just read her foreign policy statement, and she mentions how Venezuela is a threat, a threat to its neighbors. Oh my um, god! So you're still seeing that same rhetoric. So yeah, and also, I mean, the other side of the argument, you know, and as a as a white guy, it's kind of like it's hard to make the argument that this percentage only from this percentage on only mm-hmm, is when mm-hmm. you're allowed to say you are black or you are native American or you are Hispanic. I, I mean, obviously that would be ridiculous of me to like assert that I know what percentage is allowed or, you know, that's a, that's a, I don't even know where that debate currently is. I think it's subjective. Um, and I think, you know, with in Elizabeth Warren's case, it's definitely clear that she abused, you know, whatever knowledge she had about some very long, far back in her ancestry, you know, Native American heritage that make made her like below 1% or something. I think that that's sort of, you know, that's definitely fraudulent, but I don't know what, it, to what level you could say that it's not anymore. So I, I don't know. Like, I, I'm just not, I don't know where people stand on that issue. I don't even really know where I stand on it either. Right. You know, right. if you're if you're 10% Native American, is that at that point can you say you're Native American? What about 5%, you know? Right. 2% is that too little? I don't know. Well, let's move on to the the big one. Yeah, I mean the big one, you know, I've already been beating this into the ground a lot mostly because I've seen a lot of people not just liberals because let's say liberals have been calling Tulsi Gabbard an assadist. And liberals have also latched on to the anti-gay stuff, she used to say. But I've also seen people on the left who I'm normally very much in agreement with dancing around or being dishonest and just kind of disingenuous about the way they're presenting her whole record and presenting her as this person who's going to really widen the debate because of her foreign policy views because she's extremely anti-war. She's the most... I see people saying she's the most anti-war candidate. I think that in her whole total record, you look at her rhetoric and her voting record, I don't know if she's more anti-war than Bernie. To say that she's the most anti-war progressive, which is another thing I see people saying, like she's the most anti-war on the left running, from what I can see of her voting record and the things that she said about the war on terror you know, wanting to send weapons to Crimea, she is to the right on even Rand Paul on many foreign policy issues. So that's that needs to be addressed. She is not like a Dennis Kucinich on foreign policy or even like a Lincoln Chaffee on foreign policy who was a Republican who turned Democrat uh, later on. So these are all things that people need to honestly discuss because... Again, I am. Th- I see a danger in lowering the bar in terms of what we define as anti-war. It's okay to be like, I'm going to support her and vote for her because she's good enough for me. I mean, that's fine. But to be like, she's extremely anti-war, and this is like really exciting because it's going to widen the debate, I really think it's really lowering the bar. It kind of reminds you of Jeremy Scahill saying that Trump is the best chance we have to end the war since 9-11. I don't understand... 
where that hopeful mentality comes from. It's really important to stick by the principles of what being anti-war actually means. And she is definitely more right than wrong on Syria. I mean, a lot more right. She's said things about Syria that I cringe at, about jihadists mm-hmm. and, and things like that. While I understand the overall framing of that argument, I do think she is baited by some of those talking points that distort and insert problematic rhetoric into the anti-intervention debate in Syria. And she's even gone as far as saying things that sound Islamophobic when making regime change arguments, which is kind of like what Rand Paul has started doing after he's buddied up to Trump, where Rand Paul says, well, they've been killing each other since 600 AD, so let's come back here and make our country great again. Dude, what the hell? Your dad would have never said something like that. As right-wing as Ron Paul is, he would have never said something that disrespectful about the people in the Middle East since 9-11. So Tulsi Gabbard actually went on Neil Cavuto around... I think it was around 2015, and attacked Obama from the right for not using the phrase radical Islamic terrorism. That, what does that sound like to you? That's, that's a really important point. Yeah, and it's, and it's like, that to me sounds like right-wing propaganda. That's not her moral compass causing her to speak out. That's like her parroting or actually maybe even doing errands for right-wing propagandists. I don't know who I don't know who she's connected to. I do know that Steve Bannon, everyone's obsessed with this oh David Duke supports her, Richard Spencer supports her. You know, they'd retweet her. I'm less concerned about that crap cuz you know, Richard Spencer has retweeted you and me before. Mhm. And it's like, no, fuck that guy. But when it comes to someone like Steve Bannon, trying to court Tulsi Gabbard for as a role to have a role in the Trump administration that's a very that's something that needs to be analyzed why is that why did Steve Bannon see her anti-intervention rhetoric or whatever her positions are as compatible with a Trump agenda we already know Trump is not an anti-interventionist we already know Trump is deeply islamophobic and anti-arab and racist why was her position on foreign policy interesting to the Trump administration during that transition. That's a very good question. And and that hasn't really been explored. And I think that it there's you can see a line going through her whole career. Ever since she's been a congresswoman, you can see a line going through her career that kind of resembles a not isolationist. She's she hits on a lot of the same anti-intervention talking points that Trump used to, and she peppers in things that are actually like xenophobic and Islamophobic. Um, she has actually been pretty hawkish sounding about North Korea. She was fear-mongering about North Korea and nuclear missile threat early into the Trump administration. You can find plenty of things that she said about it. But also this notion that seem a lot of people, even on the left, seem to kind of believe in now, where it's that you can be anti-intervention but pro-war on terror. Um, And one of her actual quotes that I've always found problematic ever since I've heard of her was that she says, I'm a I'm a dove on on regime change, but I'm a hawk on terrorism. And I don't understand how that makes sense, because we know that since 9-11, all of these wars, including Iraq, the worst one potentially, was part of the war on terror as a slow motion you know, multiple 
pronged, endless regime change operation all over the Middle East. And it succeeded so far in overthrowing multiple countries' uh, governments. So how could you be... And I don't understand what era, what idea of the war on terror she's actually referring to. Like this narrow framework that we target terrorists by drone strikes and we assassinate them. I don't really know what she means by a hawk on terror. Is she talking about ISIS? So it, the, It's rhetoric that's really alarming when you say you're a hawk on terror. Because that, I mean, that you can argue that Trump has the same objective. Exactly. Where he wants to bomb the shit out of ISIS and have a really fast, hard war where they win fast and win big. I mean, it's just kind of a toned-down version of that exact same foreign policy. It's the drone wars. It's paradoxical, too. Exactly. It doesn't... How does it make sense? How do you meld those two things, merge those two things together? It just... I think it really does reflect the, the grasp on reality is getting less and less... We're losing our grasp on it. The fact that this rhetoric can actually float out there and take off... And people believe both of these paradoxical things at the same time. It just shows how little we're actually grounded in reality right now, I think. Yeah, it does worry me. And and look, of course, we need Medicare for all. And I do love some of the things that she talks about. And I love well, yeah, that her- she's making everyone freak out about calling her an Assadist. And you saw Barry Weiss yeah. calling her an Assad toady. That's what the that's what they're all attacking her over because of her rhetoric Which is on Syria. Absurd. So there's. She represents something threatening in a certain right. regard, but I also worry that she does represent something that's threatening, in my opinion, to the, to me and like people in the Middle East, this sort of like right wing propaganda that we should, I don't know. I mean, I, I can't. Well, I mean, she thinks Islamic terrorism is the enemy. I mean, it, that that's, you know what I mean? Like she believes in the premise of the war on terror. And she was also very pro Mattis. Uh, when he got into office, which I found interesting because if anything, if she is like a uh, now pacifist, you know, coming out of the Iraq war, which she served in, you know, kind of like in the same way that Mike uh, came around from serving the Iraq war and realizing how wrong, you know, the things American soldiers did over there. It's just odd that she would know Mattis's history and be like pro Mattis too this late in the game, like 2016. I mean, for yeah, Mike made the point, Mike made the point, you know, being in Iraq, he was like, she, first of all, she's an active duty officer, I think. Very strange um, that, yeah. Which is very strange because, because think about it, Trump is her boss. And so if he activates her, she has to follow his orders. She's a military person. She's an active duty military person. And um, Mike was saying, you know, being in Iraq as an occupying soldier, he was like, you can't leave there and not have a completely transformative view if you call yourself a progressive or like you know, understanding the suffering of the Iraqi people wanting to abolish the U.S. empire and stuff like that's the profound change that he incurred. He was like, what worries me about Tulsi is that she's never even mentioned the Iraqi people. She just doesn't want like American lives to be wasted in wars like this. That's such a good point. And it's interesting you mentioned that because I did find one instance. And I don't know if I've already discussed this with you, Abby, one instance where she did Mm -hmm. mention the Iraqi people. And she said in her mea culpa her like from two years ago about why she used to be anti-gay because of her family, because her dad was actually like pro conversion therapy. Um, mm-hmm. And she appeared in anti-gay commercials with her father when she was like 19 or 20. So it's very odd. You can watch them on YouTube. And I'm willing to, you know, I'm willing to look past some of that stuff as horrific right. as it is, even though it's actually technically 
She held more anti-gay views than even someone like Hillary Clinton, technically speaking. Mm -hmm. But that's in the past. It's from a long time ago. But her sort of like explanation for why she used to hold anti-gay views and why she doesn't anymore was very odd and shockingly insensitive considering the war that she helped, you know, the country that she occupied. She said she learned from her experience in the military, she didn't want to be like the Iraqis who imposed their will on people and like impose their religious will as to why she didn't want to like force gay marriage on the population of Hawaii. Shocking. Whoa, dude, you served in the Iraq war and you don't even differentiate. Are you talking about ISIS? Are you talking about Saddam Hussein's secular government? That didn't impose, like, didn't impose any sort of theocratic rule or anything like that. What are you fucking talking about? Mm-hmm. That really, I mean, honestly, really offended me when I read that. And I, and it's shocking to see people like Greenwald and Michael Tracy and, and these contrarian pe- type people just like dancing around that. And not only that, dancing around the torture in That's what 2014. I was get into. Right. Let's let's talk about that really briefly because I didn't know much about Tulsi. I did like a lot of the things that she was saying. She was a Bernie surrogate. She was standing up against the corruption in the DNC. She supports Medicare for all. She does hold progressive ideals. She denounced the anti-gay stuff in the past. All but true. the second you see that clip, Robbie, this is after Gitmo, after Abu Ghraib, to not unequivocally denounce torture, that's really, really, really problematic. To have a right-wing view, a right-wing view on torture. Yeah. And here's the strange part. Again, Obama, at least rhetorically, was anti-torture. He he was responsible for for putting out this report. I think he declassified the report, or he authorized it to be declassified. It's kind of like the whitewash truth and reconciliation bullshit that you know people thought that somehow he was going to do when he got elected because of how like much bush like fucking fucked up the country that fantasy you know that they were going to be in orange mm-hmm. jumpsuits this is to the right of obama even though obama was rectally force feeding prisoners at gitmo let's not forget that you know i almost even forgot that for a second i was just like holy shit no 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 that's like crazy level of torture there were some things that were changed on paper they weren't putting bugs inside box, small enclosed boxes anymore with people at Gitmo like they used to be. But she gives an answer that is a mixture between Sam Harris and Dick Cheney to the question on torture. And it's actually on an Indian TV channel from 2014 where the host doesn't say, what is your opinion on enhanced interrogation in this, in this report by the CIA? She says, what is your opinion on t- the CIA torture report that came out? And torture. And she says, well, you know, I'm, I've been, I'm very conflicted on this issue um, because if I was president, of, if I was in charge of this country, I would do everything in my power to stop an impending attack. And, and basically what she describes an impending attack, she goes into a 24 Kiefer Sutherland style Jack Bauer uh, ticking time bomb scenario. That's a complete very neocon fake. fantasy. Right. Total fantasy. It's just disturbing because, you know, I thought most progressive people had learned just the general concept, not even if they hadn't seen Power of Nightmares, but learned 
that that's the power of nightmares is sort of what got us into this mess. Technically, like if you're taking it in a literal sense, making people so afraid of these imaginary scenarios that they just go nuts. Um, and somehow in 2014, she is still under that spell. And that's very, very problematic. And then the host even tries to give her an out, Abby, and says, and, but at the same time, uh, and you know this, uh, that there's still a debate. You know, a lot of people say that the torture is actually ineffective for gathering information. And then Tulsi Gabbard says, yeah, some people say that, uh, that it's ineffective. And then other people say that it is actually effective for gaining information. It's like, what? Wait, what? Yeah. Dude, it's been known for like a hundred years that torture that. doesn't work. Wait, that's a big problem, though. Dude, it's it's such. A, it is the clip that any any leftist who's out there promoting her, who is not talking about this clip and actually trying to explain it or or making it, you know, a, a prominent part of their whole pitch for her. It's. I think they're being very disingenuous. I mean, I even saw well, Aaron that's, Monte. That's the thing. Well, that's the thing. It's why can't we just acknowledge the good and the bad? I get exactly the, again, like reacting to how the media's reacting to her about the Assadist thing. Of course, of course, we should be defending that. That's yeah. insane. That is completely insane. But again, a huge but. Like you can't just omit conveniently like the horrible things about what we're talking about. And Abby, this is something that like most Democrats pass the litmus test on. Most generic right. Democrats have passed the litmus test on torture. Right. It's kind of like the Iraq war at this point. You would have to be an idiot to be like the Iraq war was a good idea. We, sh you know, even though we didn't find the weapons. I mean, most Democrats know not to say that. Even most Republicans know not to say that anymore. So to have a progressive, the most supposedly anti-war candidate running and four years ago, she said she was conflicted on torture is absolutely mind blowing to me. And I think that it's it's a zoom in to that. And you really have to look at all of her other positions, foreign policy-wise, and examine them just based on that alone to see were, were her moral compasses. I'm not even talking about where's her rhetoric coming from? Is she being influenced by right-wing propaganda? That's a whole other argument. I mean, where's her moral compass? That's important I to guess. know and at least to get a sense of where somebody's moral compass is. I am just completely appalled that just her moral compass didn't tell her to answer that question. It's been disappointing because for me, I just want honesty. I just want an honest assessment of what's going on. What yeah. are the facts on the ground? And then we can make up our own minds. But I just don't get this kind of like, like feedback loop of media right now that totally. I, I, it's very weird. Even for Ocasio, um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Mm -hmm. I mean, like the hype you were talking about earlier, it's so overinflated that it's already creating a problematic situation where she just voted for more sanctions on Russia. And nobody's talking about that. I see people bashing Bernie when he says things about Russia from the left, but then like a lot of people ignore her voting for sanctions. So it's like, we have to look at everything. And we can't, even when Chelsea Manning was running for office, at that point, I decided now I feel comfortable criticizing her if she takes problematic positions, like reaching out right, to Mike right, Cernovich right. and trying to a, right. yeah. say that he needs to help lobby to get some guy who committed war crimes in Afghanistan a lighter sentence. So it's like when you run for public office, I think you really, it's very fair and important to scrutinize these people 
even if you're a progressive and you want to see them succeed and they they hold progressive ideals because ultimately this kind of criticism i think even for Tulsi Gabbard even though we've been saying a lot of negative things it's going to make her stronger in the future like i'm probably i can't support someone who's conflicted about torture in 2014 even if they've done some kind of reversal now that's too crazy for me maybe if we really in get her to answer for that now like if greenwald you know interviewed her for the intercept and got her to talk at length about that she'd be a stronger candidate but just ignoring it and 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 dodging these some of these things is not going to help things right we need to start pushing her from the left now of course and that means honest critique and analysis about where she really stands on these issues while pushing back on the media narrative about how she's an assadist because she doesn't want intervention in syria both can be true and both need to happen and that's what i'm really hoping for some honest media going into this election cycle um that's breaking through these mass hallucinations um And just to wrap this up, Robbie, Russia, breaking news, Russia is not going along with this coup. They are not recognizing this guy as the new leader of Venezuela. Oh, good. Yeah. So that's that's actually big. Yeah. So, I mean, but but, but as we know, Trump is still in bed with Putin. He's still Putin's puppet. So this must be some kind of ploy, just like um, the quote unquote fake bombing Trump did to Syria. You know, the Assad's forces toy bombs yeah it's just all for show well you guys big big episode today we're coming up with another one very soon covering a ton more stuff but um we're gonna get this out real quickly because of the breaking news um was there anything else that you wanted to say to wrap it up rob no i mean i'm I, i feel like we got everything we wanted to cover out and um Next episode we have planned is uh, is is jam packed and we kind of have a we haven't done this in a while but we have like a neocon update a bunch of sort of <laughs> neocon related headlines um, that all sort of tie into each other that's happened in the in the past couple of months so stay tuned for it. that yeah so just a reminder check out our last podcast about Trump expanding the empire or you can watch my Empire Files series Trump expanding the empire and Trump's Syria deception. Really, mm-hmm. really recommend those. We also have a really short installment about war criminal Mattis and how the Democrats are praising this guy as the only adult in the room. So really illuminating. Definitely check it out. And please, please, please support Media Roots Radio. We really work hard to give an honest assessment about our reality. And, um, you know, we, we really appreciate your support and really as little as a dollar or $5 a month, just the cost of a cup of coffee can really mean everything to us and embolden us to keep going and work even harder to get these um, episodes out to you guys. So thank you so much for all the support so far. Um, Please go to Patreon, donate to Media Roots Radio, and please let us know what you think. Like, what do you think about the 2020 race? Um, You can always write me at um, Abby at TheEmpireFiles.tv and just give us some feedback or please uh, write your feedback on our SoundCloud timeline and um, we're always open for suggestions and comments and everything else, critiques, whatever. Yeah, and we're both pretty active on Twitter as well, um, at Abby Martin and at Fluorescent Gray is my Twitter account. Just a couple more appearances I wanted to mention that I um, appeared on Porkins Policy radio um the other day to discuss Tulsi Gabbard we kind of got into movies I'm really I'm a really big defender and promoter of the movie Glass uh right now so everybody listening 
if you're a fan of Unbreakable or if you're a fan of early M. Night Shyamalan, go see Glass. Um, it's an amazing movie, one of the best movies I've seen in a while. We got a lot more to talk about. We're going to go into movies a little bit more on the next episode. I saw Vice as well, which I had some serious issues with. Um, so, yeah, take care, everybody. Hands off Venezuela. Hands yeah. off Venezuela. Yeah, hands off Venezuela. And this is this is the litmus test. Pay close attention right. to which people, including anti-interventionist libertarians, mm-hmm. which ones, which libertarians out there actually sticking up for the elected government of Venezuela and, and don't want the Trump administration to overthrow it. Um, and I think just remember who those people are because that's the real litmus test. It is, you know, a lot of libertarians have tons of right-wing followers uh, who are like tea partiers and, you know, defending Venezuela is a risky thing for their audiences. There's, there's really nothing to gain right now in terms of publicity for sticking up for Venezuela in any circle. So I think people need to pay attention to who's doing that. Absolutely, you guys. Thanks so much for listening. Have an awesome day and happy 2019. Hopefully this year is a little bit better than last one. Take care, everybody. Peace.